According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 5 is our text this morning. John chapter 5. Have we adjusted the volume appropriately? Wednesday morning always bears the brunt of the uh, Sunday evening adjustments, dependent upon whoever the Sunday evening teacher is, whether it's Warren or Cliff or Randy, whoever ends up being up here, typically gets the volume cranked up a little bit. And then loudmouth Pastor Bob gets back up here on Wednesday morning and got to bring it back down again. All right, John chapter 5. We are dealing with the second Passover. I believe it to be a Passover, although the text simply calls it a feast and it's left unstated what form of feast it is. The particular feast is actually irrelevant to the events that follow, and so we'll just let it go as we deal with the healing of this man and the consequences of our Lord's terrible, tragic mistake. How thoughtless was he to make this man well on the Sabbath? I mean, he's been invalid for 38 years. You'd think one more day wouldn't have killed him. Lord could have waited till Sunday and then healed him. I mean, after all, after 38 years of suffering, what was one more day just to make the the legalist happy? You'd think he could have at least done that. Well, no. (laughs) 38 years was long enough, and one more day would have been too long. So, uh We'll deal with that here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask our Father to bless our study, shall we pray? Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the opportunity that we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. We do rejoice in your faithfulness in our lives day by day, and we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to study the living, abiding Word of God. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask, Father, for your hand of blessing upon us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Through last week, we left off with the third point, looking at these five porticos. Under point one, we examined the Feast of John 5 as a Passover feast, whether it is or it isn't. I suppose we could debate until the cows come home. Uh, under point two, there were some subpoints there, but we'll pass over it. The third recorded sign miracle in the Gospel of John is the healing of an invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. And in our subpoints, we uh, again dealt with issues that we could debate until the cows come home. Uh, is this the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Bethsaida, the Pool of Bethzatha? And um, the second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4, does that belong here or not? And so a considerable amount of last week was spent dealing with studies that we call text criticism, examining the manuscripts to determine whether this was a, uh, an omission that a scribe somewhere down the road actually uh, decided that this was fuzzy and let's scratch it out. Or whether this was an inclusion. In other words, a scribe down the road at some point said, you know what, we need a, a, a more fuller explanation in verse 7, so let's, let's insert some words in here. All right? And whether it was an inclusion or whether it was an omission is something that we examine from a text. Uh, it was called textual criticism in the standpoint there. And so much of what we did last week was designed to kind of get us prepared for not necessarily verse 4, uh, because to tell you the truth, verse 4 is really a minor text uh, issue. Uh, we don't, uh, there's nothing significant in there really where we would uh, build a doctrine or where we would uh, uh, find a, a dispute, so to speak. Ultimately, what's coming up, if you, if you turn over a few pages and you'll look at the last verse of chapter 7, verse uh, 53, and then on through the first 11 verses of, ver- of chapter 8. All right. In chapter 7 and verse 53 through chapter 8 and verse 11, you've got a much larger bracket. Okay. This is the pericope de adultera, the, the uh, pericope of the adulterous woman. The famous, uh, you know, they dragged him, they dragged her before him and he started writing in the sand and he who is without sin cast the first stone. That actually is the most significant text matter in the Gospel of John. 
It is 12 verses long, and it is seriously debatable, um, and so forth. And so we're not there yet. We will get to that point here coming up. But my my intention last week was to at least expose you to a concept of the manuscripts and the legitimate questions of looking at a manuscript and telling does this verse belong in here or not? Is this a disputed text? Is, this, is there a question with respect to this text? And uh, I think if we last week did our homework well enough and to at least introduce the subject so that when we get to chapter 8 and uh, we're going to have to examine it, does this text belong in here? Is this an addition? Was this an omission? And so forth. I think we'll be on solid ground at that point to uh, to examine it rightly and not to just simply flippantly or half heartedly just say, well, that text doesn't belong in here. So let's throw it out and move on. OK, um, we may we may do that. But when we do that, we'll have a reason for saying, look, this is why this is why we don't believe this paragraph or this verse or this word or this spelling, why we don't believe that this spelling or word or verse or paragraph we don't think it appears in the original we don't believe that it was originally written by the apostle john when he sat down and composed 21 chapters of a gospel uh, message and uh, so we'll deal with that and in the same time you understand that we don't just throw out a passage lightly because there's warnings about removing from the word of God or adding to the word of God. There's curses uh, that Revelation 21 in particular says, if you add to this book, if you take away from this book. So we don't want to open ourselves up to curses. All right. But you can't escape the danger because it's one way or the other. Either it belongs here and, or it doesn't. And if it belongs here and we're taking it out, we're accountable. But if it doesn't belong here and we're inserting it in, well, we're also accountable. See, so it goes either way. It's a two-edged sword, so to speak. And I, what I really also appreciate is the fact that we're not hiding anything. Even if we think verse 4 is suspect, we still put it in there with brackets around it, letting you know that this is what it is. We think it's suspect and so forth. Uh, but we're not hiding anything. And so, I mean, if we're in the business of hiding anything, we just take it out and not tell you about it. Right? No, we're not hiding anything. As so often, um, there, are, there are people who hate text criticism. They hate the critical text of the, of the Nestle text of the Greek New Testament, for example. Uh, and they hate these things, and they get very vile in their attacks against them, as if somehow the Nestle critical text or the uh, New American Standard Bible and so forth, these are just tools of Satan, so to speak, the, the legacy of the Alexandrian cult and other things that you'll, you'll read about, perhaps. No, we're not hiding anything. We're trying to rightly divide the word of truth because we're commanded to do so. So everything we did last week, you can leave John 8 for the moment. Let's go back to John 5. Everything uh, we did last week should hopefully be helpful to at least introduce the concept that there are a variety of manuscripts out there in various ages from various centuries uh, some were written in all capital letters, some were written with lowercase letters, some were written on parchment, some were written on papyrus. Um, different things available to where we at least are oriented to the subject. We know the subject exists. And so when we get into more disputed areas, uh, we'll be on grounds to maybe build on what we've introduced last week and, uh, and gain some more ground on it coming up. Uh, that's probably the best, I think, if we just spend a Wednesday giving you an introduction and then, you know, a year from now we'll, we'll follow up with something else and then a year after that maybe we'll follow up with something else and we'll, we'll get it to you in bite-sized chunks because otherwise I would be perfectly happy to plunge into about 12 weeks of, of text criticism and manuscript study. And wouldn't that be great? Let's spend three weeks on Sinaiticus and three weeks on Vaticanus and no, that's not, that's not for the flock. That's not for... Uh, that's not ministering the word. That's more of a technical academic study that, that uh, goes behind ministering the word. All right. So that was point two. Point three, then. We, we're back to the porticos, and now we're dealing with the, uh, the sick people. Um, these aren't in dispute that they're uh, in verse two. There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticles. The is there is real interesting, okay? And it's not like, you know, President Clinton debating an is. This, this is actually an is which has a significant 
aspect to it, John says there is in Jerusalem, not there was or there used to be, see, which would have to be the case if this gospel wasn't written until after Jerusalem was destroyed. All right. So that that's a big clue in terms of writing this gospel prior to the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, where, you know, the gate's gone, Jerusalem's gone, this pool is gone. Um, Titus did a pretty good job destroying everything that he found in there. So by saying there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, then uh, that uh, that's helpful. Now, in these, uh, there's having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. All right. So these five porticos were daily packed with multitudes in need of healing. Now, let's just deal with it from that standpoint. First of all, the illnesses were various. I didn't give you these last week, did I? The A, B, and C on this? Okay. The illnesses were various. Sick, blind, lame, and withered. Okay? And uh, it's interesting. When it comes to medical treatment, illnesses actually become significant because you have an illness and there's a course of treatment that's appropriate to that illness, right? There's, it might be a pharmacological treatment, could be a drug, could be, you know, a medicine that will treat it, could be a a therapy that'll treat it, might be, you know, something else that treats it, maybe a surgery that treats it or, or uh, what have you. When you're dealing with miracles, though, God doesn't care. (laughs) You know, it's because it's an act of divine power that heals, whether it's blind, a guy that's blind or a guy that's deaf or a guy that's lame or whatever. See, uh, the great physician doesn't have to examine and make a proper diagnosis and then pursue a proper treatment. Okay, it's a work of divine power in terms of sovereignty that says you're better. Okay, that's taken away, whatever the, the sickness happens to be. The illnesses were various and. Of all the sicknesses, which are really weaknesses, the without strength weaknesses, um, blind, I think we understand that, lame, meaning that uh, they're not ambulatory, or withered, different, uh, I'm not going to break down some of this. The illnesses were various, and secondly, the healing was intermittent. The healing was intermittent. The healing was intermittent. And we don't need verse 4 in order to demonstrate that, we have the complaint in verse 7 that demonstrates that. That the healing was intermittent. These guys are gathered here for a reason. They're not just here because uh, it's a great place to be. They're not just here because they love the smell of sheep. And this is where all the shepherds bring in the sheep. This is where they get watered. And this is where they're held until such time as they're gathered into the temple to be offered up in the morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices and all the other daily sacrifices that take place. Even, you know, and then if this is a, um, a Passover feast or whatever kind of feast it is, there are going to be literally thousands of sheep slaughtered on any given day. All right. So. It's not just a place that you would hang out if you had no valid reason for doing so. <laughs> it's not, you know, uh, and, and we're going to highlight that, uh, that uh, it's not a place where you would just simply go for the entertainment or you would go for its restfulness or you would go uh, for the for the fresh air, because there certainly isn't fresh air in this gate or around these pools. All right. They're there for a reason. And the Lord, when he asked this man, do you wish to get well, is rather telling as far as the reason for their being there and we don't need the disputed text in verse three we don't need the disputed text in verse four to recognize that this is a crowd of sick people that's here because whether it's true or not they believe that this is a place where they can find healing okay now whether or not true healing was taking place i guess we could debate that we could dispute that or bounce it back and forth but whatever conclusion you and i come to these guys thought it was true or they wouldn't be laying there 38 years later, say, now this man was sick for 38 years. We don't know that he was here at this pool for 38 years, day after day, after day, after day. But whatever the case, uh, there were considerable multitudes, as it say, a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. There's quite a crowd. And uh, let's just say perhaps the healing is legitimate. Don't know that it wasn't. The text doesn't say. Uh, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons 
into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, that's the verse giving the fuller explanation of why the man was complaining about somebody stepping in before him in verse 7, where the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so, in a verse that's not disputed, the man does have a complaint that he is not able to be quick enough to get into that water, as uh, to get into the uh, the hot tub, as it were. I don't, I don't know if this was the world's first biblical jacuzzi or not, but whatever the case, he couldn't get in there because of his uh, physical handicap, his condition and, and whatnot. The illnesses were various. The healing was intermittent. Now, there's an awful lot of criticism on this. And by and large, the arguments that want to see this verse just go away uh, are stemming from mythology more than anything, more than anything wrong. They just say, you know, this is too much like a pagan belief system of a sacred pool or a magical spring or some kind of healing, you know, fountain of youth or some other kind of thing. You know, this just echoes too much of... of, uh, paganism and so we're not comfortable with it being there okay well wait a minute you could say talking animals is is uh similar to paganism wouldn't you does that mean we want to throw out the balaam story that's that's biblical and there's plenty of flood legends in pagan traditions do we want to throw out the biblical tread a flood narrative see just simply because something has a has a, uh, a reminiscence of something pagan isn't just on its face reason to toss a passage, okay? Because it very well might be God's record of a legitimate event. You know, we have God's record of the flood event. We accept that. We have God's record of the talking donkey. We accept that. We have God's record of of Superman Samson and his great strength. Are there are there pagan? I mean. Just because we say we would look at that and say, well, that kind of reminds us of Hercules. We, yeah, I'm, that doesn't really belong in there. Uh, that's just you know Greek myth and blah 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 blah. We don't want our scriptures to contain, you know, Greek mythology and so forth. And and it really it, it rings hollow when the greatest criticism they can level at a verse is that it that it rings of uh, of mythology. You know, this healing pool thing. Oh, come on. That just rings of uh, that just rings of mythology. Well, now wait a minute. Okay, sure. And there's some paganism out there that has various myths and whatnot. But there's also biblical instances where significant events did take place around miraculous events took place around pools of water. Came around the spring of Meribah, for example, or other particular places where uh, God's actual work did take place. And, and those aren't disputed passages. Okay. So simply legend is not not a good argument for throwing out a verse. Uh, the much stronger arguments are the text arguments, the manuscript arguments, you know, which manuscript contains it and which manuscript doesn't contain it. And when they do contain it, do they uh, do they indicate any skepticism concerning it and so forth? That's really the much greater, uh, the much greater uh, idea in play. So. Anyway, my personal belief is that verse 4 does belong in there, even though the manuscript evidence for it could be thought of as, as sketchy. Uh, regardless of that, I, and whether it belongs in there or not, it's not going to change any particular doctrine that I hold to. Um, so, that being said, the illnesses were various. The healing was intermittent. Okay, Again, isn't that a contrast with divine power? When when the Lord wants to heal somebody, does he have to you know wait for a period of time and say, oh, sorry, my healing batteries are a little bit low. I'll get those recharged. Tomorrow I'll heal you. No, the Lord's healings aren't intermittent in the sense that they're effective today and not so effective the next day. Okay? What a contrast. And thirdly, the venue was not prestigious. The venue was not prestigious. find it interesting those the, the the spectacular charismatic healing ministries of our time for example and uh, all of the fame and all the accolades and the great uh you know the great names and legends that these various folks want to build for themselves and all of the exposure that they want 
Okay, the Lord's not interested in that. And we're going to see not only here, but again and again and again, um, coming up in John seven, his brothers said, you know, you need to go down and get on the big stage. John seven and verse three. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Well, doesn't that just tell the whole story? Are we desiring to be known publicly or are we desiring to serve in secret so our father who sees in secret can repay? Ultimately, we want to be of service in whatever capacity he has for us and chances are it's not going to be on a big stage scripture says not many mighty see uh, we don't expect to be well known we're unknown and as yet well known god the father knows who we are it's not important that the world knows who we are we build some big name for ourselves or any other such thing but this was their approach and so he says if you do these things show yourself to the world for not even his brothers were believing in him and so when we come back to John 5 and we see this venue, the Sheep Gate, <laughs> we see, uh, I mean, he's obviously not desiring to show off. As a matter of fact, he's going to heal this guy and then he's gone. He heals the man, says, you know, take up your pallet and go home. And then he's gone. Doesn't stick around, doesn't even introduce himself. All right. And uh, and that become we'll talk about that as well, because there's no statement in here that, well, if you believe in me, I'll heal you. If you have faith, I'll heal you. None of that. See, man's a, a sinner and, and needing needing uh, repentance, needing salvation. And uh, he gets healed. No strings attached. There's a there's a follow up warning that's given, but we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. The venue is not prestigious, and I think that's significant. Uh, the critics were not on hand to observe the miracle. This is sub point one under point C. The critics were not on hand to observe the miracle. See, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Notice they don't say, who is the man who made you well? <laughs> I don't care about the miracle. Who is the one who told you, you know, who is the one that told you to break our Sabbath? Who is the one who told you, pick up your pallet and walk? But see, they weren't there. They did not observe the miracle. They didn't see what was done. They didn't see, they didn't hear the words that were exchanged. They weren't on hand. Why? Because that's not their entrance. The sheep gate is not their entrance. The sheep gate is not where they go to be seen by men with their long tassels and their robes and their, their flowing prayers and how holy they are. They are nowhere near the sheep gate. Who is in the sheep gate? The sick, the withered, the blind. That, that crowd there that needed healing. The critics were not on hand to observe the miracle. And when it comes right down to it, again and again and again and again, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ constantly going to venues or to settings where there was a need where he could dine with tax collectors and sinners and give the gospel and provide a benefit. And the Pharisees would have never, opened, you know, never darkened the door of some of those places, would have never gone to some of those dinner parties, certainly wouldn't be hanging out here at the Sheep Gate. So they were not on hand to observe the miracle. Not only is there the humility aspect of this, but I think there's also the uh, security aspect of this, that the Lord was accustomed to finding obscure entrances to cities. That the Lord was accustomed to finding obscure entrances to cities. And this is just simply a tactical aspect of physical security. That, uh, you know, if you're ever a part of a security detail or if you ever do any work in uh, being someone's bodyguard or different things. I don't know that you have. Maybe you have. I have. Um, in fact, at one point, a friend of mine and I were talking about either becoming bounty hunters. <laughs> I almost can't say this with a straight face because, because it's a true story. Oh, man. Or bodyguards. That was the second choice, either bounty hunters or bodyguards. We looked into it. We examined it. Uh, we were young and physically fit and, you know, we liked tussling it up and so forth. 
MPs in the air. I mean, of course, when you're young, you're immortal and you can do all those things. Yeah, I thought about, but I said, you know what? I'm not going to be a bounty hunter. I'm going to be a homicide investigator. I already have my life planned out. I already had, I was going to go back to Lake Forest Park Police Department. I was going to go to school, get my criminal justice degree, get my master's degree. Whole life planned out to be a homicide investigator by the time I turned 30. All right. So we talked about it a little bit, didn't seriously debate it. <laughs> Bounty hunter. I hadn't thought about that in ages. Or a bodyguard, okay? Because we did do a lot of bodyguard work. We did a lot of physical security work where you walk alongside somebody, you're in front of somebody, behind somebody, and you're watching out for the bad guys, and you have to take a bullet if that's what it takes, that kind of thing. Well, obscure entrances to cities, all right? You know, the Lord had a bit of this, and uh, I think uh, some of these attempts we're going to look at, you know, attempts to stone them, attempts to throw them off a cliff, attempts to... Uh, to uh, chop him down with a sword and so forth, all attempts to end his physical life prior to him being able to go to the cross and uh, accomplish our redemption. Uh, Mark 1 and verse 45, and then Mark 2 and verse 1. It's kind of the hinge between chapter 1 and chapter 2. It says, uh, when he went out and began to proclaim it freely, this is a, a fellow that had gotten healed here, and... Um, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. And then, as chapter 2 begins, when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward it was heard that he was at home. All right, so whatever sheep gate or fish gate or whatever other sneaky way they got him into Capernaum, they got him in at an unusual hour under darkness or whatever and, and wasn't a big public splash. And so he actually was able to get in and be at home for a couple days or a few days and get some rest. And they didn't realize he was there. See, <laughs> all right, because if they'd have known he was there, then, you know, morning, noon and night, you know, hey, I got this problem. I need healing or do this or do that. Okay. So, uh, pretty interesting. And so, it may be that this entrance into the, uh, through the sheep gate was somewhat of a security matter or something of, uh, of, uh, of the sort. Certainly, it was a humility aspect. He wasn't insisting on marching in through the main gates and, and all the rest. And even when he does make his triumphal entry, that's only to fulfill the scriptures and to announce himself as a humble king riding on a colt, not a conqueror riding on a war horse. Point four, although there were multitudes present, Jesus was focused on one particular man in need of repentance. Although there were multitudes present, Jesus was focused on one particular man in need of repentance. That was his work assignment. His work assignment was that one guy, not the rest of them, that one guy. Although there were multitudes present, Jesus was focused on one particular man in need of repentance. Verse 3 says there were multitudes. Verse 5 says, A man. And Jesus saw him knew that he had been already a long time, said to him, do you wish to get well? Didn't talk to any of these others. It almost seems like a goofy question, doesn't it? Why wouldn't he? Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he's resigned to the fact that he'll never get better. Maybe he's living in his own little self-pity party that he'll never get better, he doesn't want to get better. Legitimate question. Do you wish to get well? Verse 8, uh, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Didn't heal any of these other guys, just him. <coughs> and then verse 14. See, the man didn't know who it was that had healed him because he'd slipped away. He'd escaped. Slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. See, this man was under divine discipline. <laughs> his afflictions were a consequence of a particular sin. We don't know what the sin was. Not important. Doesn't matter. Then our business anyway. But the admonition here is, you know what? If you go back or continue in that way of living, 
next time around, divine discipline gets worse. And so the man went away and then told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. We're going to talk about that this morning as well. My question, though, is why 38 years? Why now? And why not others in need? Why 38 years? Why now? And why not others in need? I think we have to look at some of these things. And they're going to help us in answering some much broader questions for what is our responsibility towards people with legitimate needs. Maybe physical needs, maybe financial needs, and so forth. Why 38 years? Um, When you think about what it takes to prepare a person for the gospel, for example. (laughs) Um, A person who left to his own isn't going to seek God anyway, because there's none who seeks after God, no, not one. We're all totally depraved. We're all sinners by nature and by practice. But the work of grace that starts to work in a soul, that starts to convict and starts to spotlight a need and pierces a veil of darkness and starts to uh, work in a person preparing them for just the right moment. How long does that take? Well, for this guy, it was 38 years. All right. For others, maybe it'll be longer. I guess it just depends on how big a knucklehead the, the individual happens to be. Some cases it may not be so long. Why, uh, when we give the gospel to somebody, do we just give up the first time they say no? <laughs> and say, oh, well, you're a negative, you're hard, you're going to hell, you've rejected the gospel. Or we say, okay, a seed's been planted, we'll keep watering, we'll keep watering. Because someday that seed might sprout. And we might not be the tools that do it. It doesn't matter. So we just keep praying. We never give up. And we never assume that uh, because they've rejected the gospel for 55 years that they're not going to accept it in, starting in year 56. And that's why King Manasseh was given the longest reign of all the kings of Judah. The most wicked king Judah ever had. The Lord let him reign 55 years because in his final year he was going to repent. So why now? There's a second matter as far as it's the Sabbath day. Why not? (laughs) You know, why wait till Sunday? What's wrong with healing on the Sabbath? Much of our teaching for the rest of this hour and next week, we're going to be focused on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? What is allowed? What's not allowed? Okay. And when you recognize what the Sabbath is and you recognize what it's not and you see, you know what? There's no reason why a healing shouldn't take place on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, it's actually probably the most appropriate day to do a healing. Better than all those other days of the week. Why not do it on a day that's been set apart to glorify God? A day that's been set apart to worship Him. It's been set apart to fellowship in Him, to dwell upon His Word, to celebrate. Isn't it the perfect day to see a miracle done and give glory to God? It's not working. As we define working and as the Scripture defines working. We'll talk about that. But why not others in need? You know, there were multitudes here. Jesus Christ left most of them, all but one of them. He left them sick and blind and withered. And what were those words? Sick, blind, lame and withered. And when he departed, they were still sick, blind, lame and withered. Okay. Something that uh, I think we spotlighted it from the book of Acts a while back in um, because there they are in the, temp, in the temple. And here's a, here's a lame guy. And uh, so the apostles have the opportunity to, uh, to heal him and do a, a tremendous work here. It's uh, Acts chapter 3, by the way. Peter and John going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. So we assume that we don't know that he was actually in the same uh, location there that this guy here was in John 5, but the time frame fits. And uh, they used to set him down every day. Well, no, okay, so the different gate, though, because they used to set this guy down at the temple of the gate, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms for those who are entering the temple. So I think it's interesting. There's people in Acts that are still in need of healing. And Peter and John, the other apostles, Paul and so forth, they can do those healings because Jesus didn't heal everybody on the planet when he was around. (laughs) You know, if he would have healed everybody on the planet, what would the apostles have done? 
Okay, But I think there's more to it than just simply the apostles need ministry when it's their turn. There's more to it. There's reasons why people don't get healed. And a lot of times Christians don't want to hear that. They come to a prayer meeting and they're praying for a loved one and they say, heal so-and-so. It might not be God's will to heal so-and-so. And quite often our prayers get selfish. We say, well, he's got this sickness. Take it away. Well, how did he get this sickness? Who gave it to him? And what was the purpose for him having it? All too often when we're praying, we're disagreeing. He, he has this sickness. We don't think he should. Right? You were wrong for giving it to him. Well, wait a minute. He has it. There's a reason. Why does he have it? And if, uh, if God wants to heal him for the glory of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But if, if this is what's going to bring about his physical death and he won't get healed, can we say praise the God, hallelujah, there too? Okay. So I think a lot of this we want to start to consider in terms of, and, and, and the Lord will explain this here coming up in the chapter, where he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. Where he says, the Father is working until now and I myself am working. Where he says in verse 19, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And so, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to do a work with this one man. Why? Because God the Father has already been doing some work with that one man. Some of that internal work. Work that we can't see. Anytime, you know, anytime we give the gospel to somebody, what has been going on? If we lead somebody to Christ, what's been going on before we opened our, our, you know, big fat mouth and started flapping our gums? Okay, before we started talking to lead anybody to Christ, God has already been working in that heart. See, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, it says. So a lot of this will have coming up in recognizing the work of the father, the work of the son and how these things how these things all come together. Now, point five. The healed man was criticized for breaking the Sabbath. We're going to spend the rest of our uh, session today on the Sabbath. The healed man was criticized for breaking the Sabbath. But, that's verses 9b and 10. John 5, 9b and 10. But he was obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. The healed man was criticized for breaking the Sabbath. John B, I mean John 5 verse 9b and verse 10, but he was obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. John 5:11 through 13. I also have a scripture I didn't put on the screen, Matthew 12:8. Matthew 12:8. That is the text for uh, the specific title Lord of the Sabbath is found in Matthew 12:8. Verse 9, see, it would be great if this chapter ended with the first part of verse 9. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. On to chapter 6. Now, 9b, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Uh-oh. And everything else, down through verse 47, comes as a consequence of that. The great big stink, as it were. The Lord didn't make the stink. The Lord didn't do anything wrong. But the Pharisees took it wrong, and so it becomes this great big stink, and now they've got to deal with it, and now they're mad at him and all the rest. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible, it is not lawful, it is not allowed for you to carry your pallet. I think there was a vocabulary thing there I was going to spotlight. Most of the words in verse 10 are vocabulary words that uh, you've had. You've even had the un, although I didn't color it blue. If I try to search for all the uns in the New Testament, I crash everything. <laughs> There's too many uns. Um, elegon. You don't know the form. You know that's Lego, though. You know the, the word. We're saying, therefore, hoi yudai, the Jews... Hmm. 
There was something there I was going to spotlight for the beginning Greek students. I don't recognize what it was. Oh, well. Tetherapumeno. Does that word look familiar to anybody? <laughs> Not really. But it's a word you've had before. You've had the verb therapuo. That's been one of your vocabulary words. Now, the mangled form of it, the te therapumeno, you may not spot, but you'll catch those later on. Okay, I, I, my apologies. I thought there was something there I was going to spotlight for the, uh, for the beginning Greek students, and now I can't recall what it might have been. Doesn't matter. The healed man was criticized for breaking the Sabbath, but he was obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, the man, uh, verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 11, he answered them. This is his defense. It is not lawful. Okay? It is not permissible. It's wrong. And that's pretty serious because what was the penalty for breaking the Sabbath? Death. Death by stoning. And we'll see that. Um, but he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pot and walk. I'm obeying God's orders. I'm obeying orders. A work of divine power took place, and that man told me, I'm, I'm obeying him. Say, what have you guys done for me? <laughs> Why should I obey you? <laughs> right? The guy who made me well, who wasn't one of you, told me to take up my pallet and walk. He was obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. It's kind of like, um, you're driving along, and... Uh, maybe in a funeral procession or some other thing. Anyway, uh, there's traffic wreck or what have you. There's a red light. But a police officer is right down there and he waves you through. So what are you going to do? Light's red. Policeman says go through. What are you going to do? Oh, well, we're going to go through the light, aren't we? Is there anyone that would sit there and disobey the police officer because the light was red? Good luck. I wouldn't do it. The light's red, but the policeman said go through. I'm going through. And if and then he tries to give me a ticket or another police officer tries to give me a ticket, what am I going to say? Well, you told me to go through. I had permission. Normally, yes, normally a red light, uh, I would stop. That's the rules. That's what's permissible or not permissible. I would stop. But on this occasion, you told me to go on through. Right? Greatest time I ever had in Houston. You want to know what it was? It was on a convoy from Fort Hood to Beaumont, taking our vehicles to the port so that uh, they could be shipped to Saudi Arabia. And the neatest part of it was that we drove right through downtown Houston, ran every red light in town because we were in a military convoy. And we had we had police escorts lining the way and everything, DPS and Houston PD and everybody. And so we probably ran 200 stoplights in Houston that day. It was great. Never get to do that again. So, you know, you celebrate when you can. So here's what it is. Is he breaking the Sabbath? Actually, he's not. But even if he was, he has permission. The reality is, not only does he have permission, but even without permission, he's not breaking the Sabbath anyway. And we'll show that. Subpoint A. Carrying a pallet did not violate any Mosaic Law Sabbath restrictions. None. Carrying a pallet did not violate any Mosaic Law Sabbath restrictions. And we're going to spend some time on these verses. Someone might make an argument that he was breaking the Sabbath because they'll point to a verse and say, look, this guy was gathering firewood and he got stoned. And so they'll say, if picking up sticks gets you stoned, then carrying a pallet ought to get you stoned. No, let's, let's examine something else. Okay. We'll look at that. We're not going to hide from that passage, but we'll see what that passage is. So carrying a pallet did not violate any Mosaic Law Sabbath restrictions. Now, first of all, there's a general principle that will help us here, and I think will also help us with every other Sabbath controversy that comes up. And that's in Mark 2, and verse 27. This is just a principle that if we keep it in mind, in every Sabbath controversy, we'll do all right. And if the Pharisees could have kept it in mind through all these Sabbath controversies, they wouldn't have been Sabbath controversies. Um, this is coming up where they're, uh, they're all mad um, because the disciples are walking through grain fields and plucking grain and eating. And um, 
The Lord gives them some teaching about David and his men and how they uh, ate the consecrated bread and so forth. Then verse 27, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's an important order sequence. That is an important priority order. Um, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was designed to be a blessing. It was designed to be a provision for rest. It was designed to be a time for worship. It was entirely made to benefit and bless mankind. Man was not made for the Sabbath. In other words, God did not create humanity in order to serve as a slave this Sabbath day. There's an important principle. All right, back to Exodus then. Ten Commandments. Which commandment is it that says Sabbath? Observe the Sabbath. One through ten. Five? Do I hear a five? Do I hear a four? You're all guessing. Okay. (laughs) You know it's not ten. You know it's not one. All right. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There it is. Verse eight. But verse eight does not appear by itself. It gets an explanation. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, what, does it say what kind of work? No. So if you're a ditch digger, then your labor and your work is what that is there. If you're a carpenter, that's your work. That's your labor. If you're a, um, a pallet delivery man, okay, that's your labor. That's your work. That's your career. Okay, but whether you're a a ditch digger or a carpenter or a forester or soldier or whatever you are. If you're a pallet delivery man, I don't assume that there is such a thing, but for today's Bible class, we're going to pretend that there's a career out there, a thriving career of pallet delivery men. Okay. Um, You can do that. You can conduct your business. You can earn your livelihood. Uh, six days a week, but you can't do that on the Sabbath. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. So this extends to you and your entire household. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. In other words, he established the pattern. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy sanctified, set apart. The purpose for the Sabbath is to put your secular life on hold and focus on the God who created it. Okay? So, that's what it is. Let's see how else it gets amplified. Chapter 23 and verse 12. We have a follow-up. A couple chapters over. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. So again, it's not only um, it's not only you, but your entire household, those who might be working for you. So the maid gets the day off, the cook gets the day off, your servants get the day off, so they also can worship. Your animals get the day off, the ones that have been pulling your, your uh, plow and the ones that have been... You know, working, by the way, animals, in the Bible anyway, work. (laughs) I have yet to find a non-working animal. That is in terms of a house pet. Just something that you keep around because you like it, it's cute, it keeps you company, but it does no useful work at all. That is alien to the Bible. not saying it's wrong to have a pet. I'm just saying I don't find a biblical example of that. All right. Wow, that was a side trip. Where'd that come from? (laughs) Chapter 31. Okay, but you notice there's work there. There's labor. And what that is, is your uh, livelihood. And you put that on hold. In other words, you're not just working seven days a week, 365 days a year as a total workaholic trying uh, trying to get ahead in the business world. Chapter 31. Chapter 31, a much longer section here, 13 through 16. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So it's not just a, not just a matter of not working. Okay? It's, if all you do is you get wrapped up in a, in a prohibition, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you're missing the whole point. It's not just a matter of not working. It's observe the Sabbath. Okay? It's observe the Sabbath. Use this day to, to identify with the covenant blessings that are yours. Observe this day in order to celebrate the faithfulness of the Lord who saved you. Observe this day. And by observing this day, it's not just, you know, we glance on a calendar and say, oh, look at that. Today's, uh, you know, today's National Artichoke Day or whatever. Okay? And you look at it, and you acknowledge it, and you say, okay, and you go on with your life. That's not observing it. That's a passing note, okay? Um, observing the Sabbath means that today is the day that I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord. In my personal Bible study, in my family time, and my sacrifices, if I go to the temple or whatever I might do, okay? As a, as a Jewish believer in this stewardship, observing the Sabbath. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you, everyone who profanes it. Notice, it's not just working. Don't work, don't work, don't work. No, the fact of working is not just working, it is profaning the Sabbath. It is taking something that's supposed to be holy and just making it like it's another day. Just another work day. Okay? So it's not just working. The idea is that you have failed to observe the Sabbath and you have profaned the Sabbath. It shall surely be put to death. For uh, whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Six days' work may be done. Yeah, what kind of work is this talking about? Is it talking about picking up a pen? Is it talking about picking up a book? Is it talking about picking up a pallet? Is it talking about picking up something? I mean, is it, does it matter how heavy the thing is? Say, well, that's not much work. No. Neither is picking up a pallet and going home. Is that work in terms of your livelihood and you're getting paid for it and this is you're getting ahead in the career and you're getting an edge up? No. Six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. All right? If you're a ditch digger, your, your, your career is on hold today. If you're a carpenter, see, um, and it goes down through verse 16. All right, Numbers 15. Numbers 15. And this maybe this is all overkill. I'm giving you too many passages, but let's just look at them. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. Now here's the case in point. While the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right. Remember, thinking about gathering firewood, what was he doing? Something that could have been done the day before. Remember, what was the pattern on, on uh, manna? On Friday, they gathered two days' worth so they wouldn't violate the Sabbath. Okay. Likewise, gathering firewood, you've got to do it. It's part of your household chores. You know, they didn't have gas or electric stoves back then. They had to gather firewood and cook over fire and so forth. But he could have, should have, and, and if he wanted to live, he would have gathered the stone, uh, the, the sticks the day before. The issue is not that he's working, not that he's uh, obey, disobeying the thou shalt not, but he's profaning the Sabbath. He's failing to do what he was told to do, observe the Sabbath. Okay? So there's, again, the, the picture here is daily uh, routine. So in terms of your career, Whatever you're doing Sunday through Friday, you're a ditch digger, you're a carpenter, you're a fireman, you're a pallet delivery man, okay, that stops. You don't do that on 
Saturday on the Sabbath. Gathering sticks, gathering firewood. Well, you do that on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The one day you don't do that is the Sabbath because you're observing the Sabbath. You double, you gather twice as much the day before. Okay? Because you're working. You're profaning the Sabbath. You're doing something and profaning the, the day of rest by doing something mundane, by doing what typically is done Sunday through Friday. Okay? Verse uh, over to Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13. All right, Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you get to Job and Esther, you've gone too far. Nehemiah 13. 15 through 21. See, the man carrying his pallet, he just got healed. He can't say, well, you should have done that yesterday. No, he couldn't have done that yesterday. So he shouldn't have done that yesterday. He just got healed today. Is he supposed to wait till tomorrow to go home? Besides, it's not work anyway. He's not gathering firewood, which should have, would have, could have been done yesterday. He's not pursuing a career. He's not making money. He's not a pallet delivery driver earning his income. He's a sick man that got better that's taking his pallet home. Now, I would agree. If he was a professional pallet delivery driver, and if he delivered pallets on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, then carrying this pallet today, okay, I, I could look at that and say, all right, fine, he's breaking the Sabbath. Because he's a pallet delivery driver. That's what he does. That's his career. And he's working. Right? No, he's not working. He's not a pallet delivery driver. He's a sick guy. And he's now healed. He's whole. And he's obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's going home. Nehemiah 13. And I think these, the Nehemiah and the Jeremiah passages spell it out. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in sacks of grain. And loading them on donkeys. Okay, this is commerce taking place. This is business. These are people pursuing their careers, loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So these are loads, not just a guy picking up a pallet. These are, they have loaded donkeys. They have compiled baggage trains. They've compiled caravans. They're conducting um, commerce from outside of Jerusalem into a marketplace within Jerusalem. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Now, the men of Tyre, they're not under the law. They don't have to obey the law. But if they're living among them as sojourners, they're expected to observe their customs, their laws. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by working, by carrying loads, by, no, by profaning the Sabbath day? That's the issue. Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought, us, brought on us and on this city all this trouble? You are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. I should have read Jeremiah, Jeremiah first. That comes before Nehemiah in terms of sequence. Yeah, Nehemiah is ministering to them. They've been through 70 years of captivity. They're just getting back into Israel. They've just rebuilt their temple. They're just rebuilding their walls. They're trying to get back up and running again. And here they are doing the same thing they did that led to the captivity in the first place. Which Jeremiah points out. Jeremiah 17, 21 through 24. Remember, Jeremiah was the prophet who uh, saw Jerusalem captured and fall down around his ears. Jeremiah 17. Verse 19, The Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out, as well as all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. So is this saying, don't carry a pallet home if you get healed? No, that's not what this is saying. Thus says the Lord, uh, verse 22, You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. So in other words, you're not bringing in a shipment for commerce. You're not taking out a shipment for commerce. You're not working on this day. 
Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order to not listen or take correction. So there's the ministry of Jeremiah. Should have read that before I read Nehemiah because uh, Jeremiah, they didn't listen to him. That led to captivity. They came back. Nehemiah said, you're still not listening. You're violating the Sabbath. Now, in any of these passages, have we seen anything that says that if you get healed and Jesus tells you to carry your pallet home, that you're breaking the law? No. Because everything here is about work, about daily working that, that needs to be done Sunday through Friday so you don't profane the Sabbath, or uh, career, the pursuit of career, the pursuit of income. None of that's happening here. This is not a Sabbath violation. What it did violate, and we'll have to get to this next week, some point B, carrying a pallet violated the traditions of the elders. Didn't violate the Bible, but it violated their interpretation of the Bible. And to them, that was everything. Carrying a pallet violated the traditions of the elders. And that will be our subject one week from today. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this uh, Bible class, and this opportunity to learn. I pray that we might be convicted with respect to your grace eternal plan, recognizing that uh, we are designed to glorify our Savior and, and you have not intended for us to be enslaved to a legalistic standard or to a false religion, a uh, form of godliness while denying its power. Father, uh, thank you for setting us free. Thank you for uh, allowing us to worship in spirit and in truth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.